In the middle of her residency, Dr. Aline Kragosian went into heart failure and required a heart transplant. So she tells us about her experience and what she learned so that we can help you be a better doctor. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a show by me, Dr. Bradley Block, and this is a practical guide for practicing physicians where we interview experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc Lending, the personal lending platform for doctors by doctors. Traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending to doctors because a lot of us carry significant debt. But at Doc2Doc, they know that as a profession, doctors almost never default on their loans, and they take that in consideration when they're setting our rates. I love what Doc2Doc is doing within our community, so please check them out at doctodoclending.com slash PGTD. That's doctodoclending, number two, slash PGTD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Dr. Aline Grigosian, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You did your emergency department residency at Drexel at Hahnemann, and then went on to join us in New York here for your ICU fellowship, your critical care fellowship at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. But your training was interrupted by a health issue. Correct. Yes. What happened? What happened? Okay. So emergency medicine is usually three or four years. And so towards the middle of your third year of residency, so this is towards the end, is when you start applying to either fellowships or jobs, depending on what you want to do next. At that time, so I want to say October, November, December-ish of 2018, I was applying to fellowships. Very, very ironically, I really liked critical care. I really liked cardiac critical care. It was a new and emerging field is to do emergency medicine to critical care. Usually it's for people who are like internal medicine, palm crit trained, but you know, nowadays more and more of us are going into critical care. And so it was this brand new sexy field that I really, really wanted to get into. I had applied, I was interviewing, I was on top of the world. I even remember thinking like everything was going very well academically, socially, I was enjoying everything. And the only problem that I had, this was like November, December of 2018, was that I had this like persistent cough that wasn't going away. And I had been sick, like I had some sort of URI at some point, and we always get sick during residency, and it's not like anything we really worry about. It wasn't anything that was keeping me from like going to work, but it was just like this, like every, you know, hour or so I would cough and I had sniffles and I didn't know what was going on. That persisted on, it got a little bit worse. And in the middle of December, which is actually right around the time that I had matched into my fellowship. So at this point, like I knew I was going to be going to New York City for this critical care fellowship at Mount Sinai, but this cough started getting worse and I was having progressively worsening shortness of breath with it too. And that's when I knew something was wrong. I vividly remember going to work one night. I had a 24-hour shift in the ICU as an ICU resident. This was right around the middle of December. That's the night that I felt like everything got 100 times worse. My attending had even noticed that I was like, not able to finish sentences without stopping to take a deep breath, which is a pretty big deal. Wait, so you went from, oh yeah, I've got the sniffles and a cough to I can't finish a sentence. Exactly. And it all happened very quickly. Like, you know, I had this persistent cough for a few weeks, but then like within a couple of days, I became more short of breath. The following day after my 24-hour shift, I went home and I wasn't feeling good. And you still finished your shift. <laughs> I know, yeah. 
You were so short of breath that you couldn't finish a sentence and you're like, I'm going to finish my 24-hour shift. Okay, okay. We can't call anybody in. This is my job. Yeah, that was actually like a very like resident move. I even remember my attending was like, go down to the ER and get a chest x-ray. And I was like, ah, I can just... And then come back up and finish rounds. Yeah. <laughs> and then finish signing out. Yeah. I, know, I always think about what could have been, but then I stop myself because I'm like, you know what? It already happened. So there's no point in me like thinking about what I should have done at that time. So either way, like I decided to do the shift. I went home. I like to describe this because I remember I had to go to the bathroom and my bathroom was only like a few feet away from my bedroom. And I couldn't even walk to the bathroom at that point. Like I was having trouble walking to the bathroom. Ended up going back to the emergency department. So, you know, my colleagues, my co-residents, my attendings who had just seen me in like the last few days, they told me I look so much worse there's a picture of me actually where like my lips look blue. Like I definitely, there's something going on. What's the worst it could possibly be, right? I was 30. I had barely been to a doctor before this and I had had this like URI, you know, we thought it would maybe the pneumonia. And so we did a workup while we're trying to get things done. We got this chest x-ray that showed bilateral infiltrates. And the first thing you think of when you see that in a person who's 30 years old is not heart failure. It's usually like, oh, it's probably like this multifocal pneumonia that she like contracted from someone. And so I was kind of being treated, trying to figure out exactly what was going on, but I was getting antibiotics in the meantime, and they were trying to like give me supportive care. I ended up going up to the floors. So like I was going to get worked up more for the shortness of breath and possible pneumonia. This is just within a couple hours of even going to the ER. So, you know, ER, floors. At that time, I had been dating an orthopedic surgeon, and the joke is that I looked so sick that he like knew something was wrong. Like that's how <laughs> <laughs> Keflex? <laughs> I think I said something like, you know, I don't feel good. And I looked up and my heart rate was like in the 30s. I was really sweaty. Like something was wrong. And he was like, I knew something was wrong. I was like, all right. So I think he like, you know, went to get one of the nurses. And that's the moment that I stopped remembering everything. So what I'm telling you after this is the things that they told me had happened. Apparently, I had gone into like, you know, cardiogenic shock. I had crashed. What they describe, I became pulseless. I ended up requiring some resuscitation and I needed some pressors and they intubated me. They put a line in me. They took me to the ICU. You know, in the meantime, they also took me to the cath lab. You know, they did all the workup for, you know, what might be going on. I woke up 48 hours. This is your hospital. These are your friends. These are my friends taking care of me. They all have PTSD from this. I feel very bad. And, you know, I knew a lot of these nurses and the doctors who were taking care of me. The next thing that I remember was I woke up intubated in the ICU. This is at Hahnemann. So this is at my training hospital years ago. And there's a bunch of people around me. And I think they extubated me and they were like, you are in heart failure. And so it was within 24 to 48 hours of the actual episode. So I got extubated pretty quickly. And my ejection fraction at the time was 5% which is very low. <laughs> I didn't think that was compatible with life. I had never seen one at 5%. Yeah. So, I mean, in my very green, like two years of residency by then. Wait, so just flash forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. You ended up doing a critical care fellowship. Right. So then do you look at patients that have like a 15% ejection fraction and you're like, ah, oh, they're fine. <laughs> Does that ever cross your mind? Just as like a teaching point, like anything under... So if you have like a EF of like 
50 to 60%, like that's good. But once you're under 30 to 20%, it all sucks. So the way that like one of the cardiologists described it was like that cardiologist who said it was 5% was just showing off. Like (laughs) it's just severely decreased. It's like immeasurable beyond a certain like they're just making up numbers. Yeah. Just like really low. Okay. Exactly. And so it was just like severe heart failure at that point. And you know, they had to transfer me. I got transferred to a couple different hospitals. I, I ended up at Penn, which is when by the time I got to Penn, I even remember one of the residents, which was like, wow, you're really sick. And I was like, maybe you shouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> it's like, I mean, wow, your numbers are terrible. I was like, all right, thank you. Yeah. I mean, maybe with like other patients, just be careful with the way that you say it. But again, I'm very lighthearted and I thought it was more like funny than anything. But still, you're in this situation. How did you wrap your head around this? Because you went from fine to I don't feel well, I'm sure it's pneumonia, to a 5% ejection fraction, and you know what that means, right? Like you can fully wrap your head around the implications of that. So I'm just going to use the same term again. How did you wrap your head around like that this was happening to you? There's a lot of this that I don't remember that well anymore. A, I don't know if it's because like I wasn't having getting enough oxygen into my brain. Yeah, you were under perfusing. Yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, I was on a lot of meds. But like, I remember at the time thinking like, okay, I guess I have to deal with this. I don't think I fully grasped how sick I was. Like, I remember thinking like, what's the worst that could happen? Well, I could die. I, I was literally days away from dying. But I don't think I fully understood it. And and only months later, especially during my fellowship, when I kept seeing people arrest who were in my position, I was like, oh my God, I was really sick back then. So there is a part of me that thinks like, did that help me? Like not really processing it at that time and kind of just like doing what I could and like moving on. Just the way that I was thinking was more like, I got to get out of this hospital. Okay, fine. If I die, I die. If I don't, like good. Like I, I was a very like realistic thinker. And I also remember... I didn't overthink things. Specifically, I remember when the cardiologist came in and was like, you know, there's nothing else we can do. Like, you actually, like, you need to get an urgent heart transplant. We can't even do an impella. We can't, like, there were no devices. Like, I think at one point they said possible balloon pump, but overall there was ultimately what I needed was the transplant. And I remember when she told me that, I was like, all right, let me get it and get out of here. Yeah, I've got to go round. You know what? I never finished signing out. And she's like, you are being such an ER doctor about it because you're just kind of like, what do I need to get out of here? Like, let me just get the train. Like, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh my God, my old heart isn't like, I just didn't overthink it, which I do think that you need to process things that happen to you. And I think you should put time into like understanding the emotions around specific events. But at the same time, like, I think what really helped me was the fact that I just kind of was like, all right, let's do it. I didn't overthink. I trusted the people around me. I trusted the people that were taking care of me. And I just went with it. Um, And In a way, I I always uh, say that ER doctors, I don't know if my training helped me with this process or if it's me that went into emergency medicine because I'm already like that. But the way that we are in the emergency room is like, you know, we got to be calm at all times. We can have a stroke patient come in at the same time as a gunshot wound patient at the same time as a cardiac arrest patient. And you just got to deal with it. Like you can't sit there and be like, well, you know, what what should I do? Oh, no, there's three things at once happening. What's going to happen? No, like you just deal with what comes to you. Triage and get it done. Yeah. Again, I don't know which helped the other, but I do think that me being an emergency medicine physician absolutely helped my experience with this sudden thing that happened to me. Okay. So now 
we're still pre-transplant now. So now you're finding out you need a transplant urgently. Mm -hmm. So then what happens? So they told me that, so usually with transplants and transplant committees, they meet at a certain day of the week. And so they're like, we're going to meet on this day and then we're going to present your case. And I remember thinking like, are you going to talk about personality? Are you going to be like, she's a spunky girl? (laughs) (laughs) Or is it just all like lab number? Like I was very curious and they were like, well, I think it's a little more formal, but I was like, you guys can talk about me. Like, can I come? Like, maybe you could just like, which picture do you use? It's like what Will Flannery, like Glockam Flecken, I'm yeah. sure I'm not saying it right, when he does like his pediatric impression, it's like, this is a very cute little girl yeah. who likes balloons and rainbows. And <laughs> Exactly. I was like, can you guys talk about all the things that I like? But no, I think they just go through like labs and like, you know, there's a lot of things that go into transplant committees and selection. So like, you know, certain things like, do you have support? Like people don't realize that if you're going to get a transplant, you need to have support living with you for the first few months or else you actually can't get a transplant. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And, you know, luckily I had, you know, all the checkboxes marked and they came back a few days later and they're like, all right, you're going to get on the list, you know, sign these papers. And I remember like the nurse who, the coordinator who told me this, she's like, okay, well, you're going to have to get a transplant. Here's the paperwork. And she like started going through it and I took it and I immediately signed it. And she's like, do you have any questions? And I was like, no. (laughs) She's like, you don't have any questions. Like, you don't want to know what the process is like? I was like, no, it's okay. Just like, what is it going to change my mind? Like, what? what, Yeah. It's like, if I don't sign this, it's not going to happen. Like, exactly. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of time for questions later. Yeah. You just get it in me. Yeah. I was like, I don't have any questions. I'm fine. Like, I, I'm going to Google a couple of things. I'm going to talk to people. But like overall, <laughs> right now, I'm like, my parents probably need your help more than anything. And my parents don't speak English that well. So they needed like, you know, there was a lot of things. And I was like, just get them resources first and, and you know, answer their questions. But as for me, I'm good. Like, let's just get this signed and get it over with. And she told it, like, she'll always say, she's like, I've never had a transplant patient so sure. And like, just signed and like said, all right. That's it. I don't have any questions. (laughs) I think part of it was also because like, yeah, I am a medical professional, so I'm sure there's at least some things that I already knew. You know, I know what a pre-op process is like. I know the things that I need to do to get there. And I know that there are certain things that they're going to be wanting. Like there were certain things that I already knew. So that probably helped as well. But yeah. And timeline wise, because how long is your CCU? Is it two years or three years? My fellowship? Yeah. Was two years, correct. Was two years. And so- if I'm doing the math correctly, this is like right before COVID. This is 2019. And I was supposed to be starting fellowship in July of 2019 because I had just gotten in and I was going to finish my residency. And go- but what had happened was this is a total like doctor thing to do. While I was in cardiogenic shock, like one of the first people that I emailed was my program director of my fellowship. And I was like, hey, just FYI, like I'm actually needing to get a heart transplant urgently. And I just want to make sure that you guys are going to keep my spot next year. <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be on time. Don't worry. I won't be late for my first day. And I think my email was something like, if I live, then I want to like definitely still do fellowship, which again is very like me. Like I'm very like direct because my thing was, if they take my spot, then I'm going to have to reapply this year to ERAS. And like, I want to make sure that like everything is in order until... Yeah. What a pain in the butt that was. <laughs> I don't want to go through that again. And then... Let me tell you, Mount Sinai Critical Care Fellowship Program has been supportive till this day. Not only did they come to visit me in Philadelphia, like while I was sick, 
I mean, they sent me cards and they like, they were so worried and they were like, you can still do this fellowship. Like, do not worry. We'll keep your spot. You can even start next year if things don't like work out by this year. So they were amazing. I love them to death. So I got on the list. I didn't wait that long. Usually people wait long, but keep in mind that I was very sick. I was in cardiogenic shock on tons of support. Uh, Other things that help you is usually if you're like smaller or have a certain blood type or if you have like a very common blood type that helps you as well. And so, you know, within two weeks, less than two weeks, I actually got a heart transplant, which is insane. And I was so lucky that it happened. Wouldn't the fact that you're like, I mean, a great candidate, right? You're educated. You have social support. You had no other medical problems, no comorbidities, great shape in other ways. Yeah. So a lot of those things do go into play. Education, not so much, but obviously like having the support. When people ask, like, how did you recover? I'm like, keep in mind, I was literally healthy right before this happened. And that is going to be like, I'm going to be a perfect surgical candidate for that reason, right? Like, if you have chronic heart failure for 10 years, you're deconditioned by the time you get to transplant. For me, like, I was running like the week before I went into shock. And so, yeah, whole other story. So, yes. I was a pretty good candidate. And I'm sure you were pushing through. Why am I slower than I usually am? Why the- Exactly. And so in many ways, yes, like that helps. But overall, what because it is a common misconception is people are like, is it because you're a doctor? You got on the list? Like, I'm like, no, no, it's not that. It's how sick you are that really gets you to the top of the list. And then obviously having all the right, you know, having the blood type and this, that helps too. Okay. So then the day came and you got your transplant. Yeah. January 15 or the night of the 14th. So it's really, really interesting because like I was not expecting it. And even though every day I was like waiting for this call, but the nurse came in and I thought it would be like this, like balloons and like excitement. And like, it was just like an iPhone. He's like, Hey, you got a phone call. I was like, phone call. The coordinator on the other line was like, you know, there is a heart that can be procured tonight. And you know, our time will be 2am. I just need you to accept. They go through the consent I was so shocked that I didn't know what to say. And so my first thing was like, I got to go talk to my mommy. Like I just digressed into like a two-year-old. I was like, let me make sure with my mom first. I get it because you're like, this is it. This is it. Yeah, I get it. Because then who else? Your program director? Like it's either your mom or your program director, right? Those are the two people you're going to call. Yeah. And the funny thing is, so my parents, one or the other, at least, usually my mom would stay with me at the hospital. This is before COVID. So like families could stay there. I actually was at a party in my room, tons of residents, like people flying in from everywhere to visit me. So my mom had been there basically the whole time. And this one night, my cousin flew in from LA and was like, and I was like, listen, take my mom out. Like she needs to get out of the hospital. And so my mom loves casinos and like my cousin had decided to take her to some like janky casino in Pennsylvania <laughs> of all places. And then I'm sure they look like assholes, right? Because I was like, my mom's at the casino. Like, wow, <laughs> daughter is like waiting for her. But no, my poor mom, like I forced her to go. And my cousin decided that taking her to a casino would be like a way to get her mind off. Right. But, uh, but <laughs> it's like I do an adenotonsillectomy on a three-year-old. Where'd the family go? Oh, they're at McDonald's. And you're like, I told them I'm not going to be that long. They're at your mom was at the casino while you were signing for your transplant. Okay. So I called my mom and like, there's like, you know, the casino sounds in the background and she's like, oh, like I'm winning money. And I'm like, I'm about to go into surgery for my heart transplant. They immediately came back to the hospital and, you know, there was an OR time for 2 a.m. And so they had to do like the wash and all the stuff that they came in, they got consent and they did all the stuff. And I remember one of the craziest parts was 
while people are coming to visit me before I go, they finally wheeled me to the OR right around 2, 3 a.m. And right before they intubated me, the nurse was like, is there anything else you want? And I'm like, can I just call my mom one more time? And she's like, she's like, yeah, of course. And she actually gave me her phone and I called my mom and I was like, mom, like, what if I die? Like, I think that's the moment that I realized that I'm about to have this crazy surgery. My EF is 5%. I can die like on the table. And I was like, mom, what if I die? And she said the best thing that like a mom could ever say or a parent could ever say was like, you could have died so many times until this point and you didn't. And so like, you're going to be like, I had gone into VTAC a few times, like, sure, like, I'm not really like a spiritual person or anything. And like, that's what I needed to hear. It's reassuring to hear that from mom. Exactly. Her little girl is about to go into this ridiculous surgery. And if she's cool as a cucumber and she's like, you have been through so much, you're going to be fine. Like that has to be, that must have been so, so reassuring. Oh, it was super reassuring. And it was just what I needed to hear. And I was like, okay, thanks, mom. <laughs> like, I'm much more of like, if somebody asked me that, I'd be like, well, there's risks, you know, like I'm much more of like a... <laughs> and but I now you know, lesson, <laughs> yeah. lesson learned. If the tables are turned, right? Like, yes, we have to be honest with patients. One of the reasons why I podcast, right, is to hear things like this where we can learn from it so that we can be better with our patients. And exactly. I think, I think there's something big there because we are so set on being clinically honest all the time. Well, like, is everything going to be okay? I'm going to curse. Just fucking tell them they're going to be okay sometimes, right? Because yeah. if they're not, you'll deal with it. You know, when they're about to go to sleep, they're in that moment. They're really anxious. I think it goes a long way to be like, so you know, too. we're going to take great care of you. You're going to be fine. Right. I agree. Because you know, I don't think they're going to turn that against you. Like if you have a complication, they're not going to be like, you fucking told me I was going to be fine. And no, I'm not. And if you hadn't like that one thing, they're really going to use that against you. No. You know, I think there is a lesson to be learned from Mrs. Gregosian here yeah. where they're like, you know what? Be cool as a cucumber. Yeah. We're going to take great care of you and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And she was. She was extremely cool. It was funny because my dad is generally the one who's like cool. And my dad was crying the whole time. Like from, from the day that I was hospitalized, he cried every single day. And my mom was the one who was like, she's fine. Everything would be fine. And so it was very interesting seeing that dynamic. And I'm so glad she told me that. And and one of the last things after we hung up, like I remember the anesthesiologist was asking, like, oh, what kind of music do you want? And I was like, Tupac. He's my favorite. Like, we gotta, we gotta listen. So I went to sleep. The last thing I remember is Tupac's like All Eyes on Me album. <laughs> Which they promptly changed right after you went to sleep. Probably some surgeon thing that they put on. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, while we're on the topic of those phrases, you know, that helped you through these challenging times, what were some of the other things that, whether it was a doctor, or a friend, or a nurse, or anyone who was involved in your care that really stands out to you as like, those things really meant a lot, big or small? There were a lot of things. And overall, it made me become a better communicator. It's like seeing these things. Like, I remember I was in heart failure, and I'm on this like AHA diet, right? And so I have to be careful with what I eat, you know, and I was barely hungry, right? Like, yeah, I'm so sick that I'm not even hungry. And like this one day, I just really was craving a Philly cheesesteak sandwich. I was like, I just want one bite. From where? I went to college in Philly. Where was it from? <laughs> I don't remember which one. I even okay. said just the cafeteria is fine, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get them from a food truck outside is great. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I do like Prince's. That was my go-to. So I remember I told my cardiologist that they were coming into round, you know, with their like white coats and clips and everything. 
And she's like, you know what? Just go eat a Philly cheesesteak today. That's good. And that really like resonated with me. She's like, that's fine. There's one Philly cheesesteak when I'm that sick. Gonna like, I just want a bite of it. Like I was craving something. And so like little things like that, because sometimes like patients are so focused on like food, like I shouldn't eat that. I'm like, no, if you really want a piece of cake, let me go get you a cake. It's fine. Like you're going to be fine. Just not right before surgery. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> I think this was right. This was like a couple days before. And then overall, just like understanding. So I remember, in my opinion, a lot of this is more difficult for caregivers and the support people that are around the patient than the actual patient. You can ask me about my hospitalization at Penn for two weeks, and I remember bits and pieces. But I can tell you right now, my parents and my friends remember way more than I do. And so I make it a point to also talk to family members and make sure that they understand that not only like do their cares also matter, but also I thank them for like what they do because I know that they're going through a lot. Like who knows how, like my parents told this day, if I say something like I'm dizzy, they're like, oh, what if you end up at the hospital? And, you know, they have like PTSD from everything that I went through. And so I know how hard it is for caregivers too. And sometimes I just want to like, I mean, I always thank them when I meet them and I take my time to talk to them because that's a good point. They're going to get affected by this way more than the patient in so many ways And like, at least with patients, like we were just talking about this earlier, like patients get like paid time off and we do this. And like, you know, if if something happens, this but like, what about the caregivers? Like, where's the support for them? It's not as open and there aren't that many resources for them. And so I make it a point to tell them, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Care for the caregiver, support for the caregiver, anything that you could do, Mm -hmm. even just doing a great job. Maybe they feel like they're not doing as much as they should you know, reassure them that they are. They are just by being there. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Gregosian, you are, you know, you're really, we see all that you're doing for your daughter here and, you know, you're really doing an amazing job supporting your daughter. You know, that I think would go a long way in those, I mean, maybe giving them paid time off as well. (laughs) I'm I'm sure that does happen. I'm (laughs) just saying like in general, we're more focused on the patient than- No, we are. And often neglect- just straight up neglect the caregivers. So mm-hmm. that's yeah, that's something that we could all do better. Well, okay, so what about the opposite? Like without throwing anyone under the bus here, we're not looking to make anyone look bad. What about the opposite? Some things that you experienced or witnessed that could have been better. Yeah. And this goes for like, you know, I've been hospitalized many times at many different hospitals and I've interacted with many different like physicians and nurses. So it goes for like just generalizations that I've seen is like when you're a patient you can hear more than what people think you can hear. So you have to be really mindful when you're outside of the patient's room, even if you're just a few feet away, like there's nothing else to do when you're in the hospital room. You can hear everything that's happening around you. And it wasn't even necessarily about me. Sometimes I'd hear things about other patients. And I think that's, you know, there should be a little more privacy. And I think that if you have to say something about someone if, and you're around the room, you should probably be nicer about it or... So like little things like that, I don't think I realized how much patients really see and hear everything that's going on around them because you're usually like, oh, you know, they're in the bed. They're not even paying attention. No, they are paying attention to a lot more than you think they are. They've got nothing to do but pay attention. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, you know, little things like that. I also feel like one of the things that I really started doing afterwards, so Again, I'm going to remind people that like my parents don't speak English that well, definitely not medical English, like they're not medical people. So one thing that was really difficult for them was like how, they'd come in and they'd be like, oh, the ICU doctor said you're fine. But like, why is the heart failure doctor saying that, you know, you still need a heart transplant? And then the surgeon is coming in and saying that like, oh, are you eating enough for surgery or whatever? 
for them, like they didn't understand that every team's goal was different, right? Like the ICU doctor's goal is just to keep you alive. So of course I'm like, I'm alive. I'm fine. Like yeah. that still means I'm really There's sick. There's no change. You're <laughs> same. You're the same person you were yesterday. And we know that you aren't going to get better. So if exactly. you are the same as the way you were for that is outstanding. Like we're exactly. high-fiving. That's great. But exactly. being misinterpreted is like, oh great, she's going to be discharged fine. soon. Exactly. Exactly. And so for them, they were like, the ICU doctors came in and said like everything was fine. And you know, I'm like, yeah, but I'm still in heart failure. And the yeah. cardiologist was a little more like serious, you know, it was like, no, it was very bad. And my parents were like, well, the ICU doctor is really nice and said everything's fine. <laughs> I was like, well, we talk to the one who's full of good news. You're full of bad, gloomy Gus here. And so I make it a point to also tell people to make sure you communicate what your goal is. So like, I am the ICU doctor, I am here to, you know, make sure her vitals are okay, and kind of coordinate the care for her. But the cardiology team is the one who's going to be in charge of her heart transplant, she needs a heart transplant. We do it more often in my like, I do EM and critical care. And it, for us, like, we're always talking to other consultants. And so a lot of times, like our job gets like, people are like, so what are you again? And so I feel like, I now try to do a better job of explaining what I do and that every team is going to have different goals. And sometimes it's better if you just, I mean, every patient's different. Some patients do want to talk to every doctor separately. But in my opinion, I'm like, just get a plan together. Sure, like go say hi. But at the end, just let the ICU doctor or ER doctor or one doctor say the plan at the end of the day. And the other thing, things can change. My parents were like, well, like an hour ago, they weren't going to do the CAT scan. I'm like, yes, things are dynamic in the hospital. And so constantly reminding people that, things can change is really important, especially for people who aren't in medicine and don't understand that as well. Make sure everyone stays on the same page. The decision-making is dynamic and make sure that the communication is as dynamic as the decision-making. Exactly. Exactly. Anything that you think that you do differently now as a physician than you would have done? A lot of those things. transplant And one other thing, I love doing this, especially when I was in fellowship because I was at like a tertiary, like, care transplant center. And so sometimes I'll just go around and talk to patients, especially like younger ones or pediatric patients who are either waiting for transplant or post-transplant. And if their doctors want me to, like, I'll just go talk to them. Not so much to be like, I'm not like, I'm an inspiration and you're going to be a doctor too. Like, I'm not like, I'm just like, hey, this is my story and I'm doing fine. Like, you know, like just to show them, because I feel like one thing, especially in transplant is like most of our patients are a lot older and it's hard to connect with people. And that's not bad at all. Like, I'm glad there are, you know, tons of older people who have heart transplant and liver transplant. But the thing is, like, I was a 30 year old who had no idea what I was doing. And I've never even had like to take one pill in my life. So it would have been nice to have someone to talk to, whether it's, you know, another patient, or like even like social media support groups, something. I also try to give resources out to those people. And I tell them my story because I would have really liked that, especially when I was hospitalized and had no idea what was going on. So it was just nice to talk to someone. It would have been nice to just be able to talk to someone who had been through it. And I don't know if anything can actually be done, but maybe hospitals can start like a program where like people could volunteer once a week who were transplanted there and come in, just walk around. Again, when I would go into these rooms to talk to them, it wasn't like, I was like, hey, I'm a doctor, but I'm not talking to you. Like, I'm just telling you my story. If you have any questions, let me know. Like, that was basically it. And it really yeah, helped. Yeah, I heard that on one of your, and this is a good opportunity to plug your podcast, Both Sides of the Stethoscope. Yes. I was listening to an episode where one of your guests had a heart transplant also, and she was saying that she was this, like, 
young, healthy woman, and she went to their like mandated support group, and it was like a bunch of 80-year-old dudes. So it was like her and like, this is my community. You know, and human beings are tribal. I say it on the show all the show all the times. And you know, your tribe, one of your tribes is now, you know, the heart transplant community. Right. So she looks around the room, she's like, This is my tribe. These are my people. What planet is this? Yeah. Yeah. And that's so, fine. Yeah, yeah. Like at the end it's of the day. It's fine, but we can do better than fine. Right? Exactly. Like, oh. Exactly. Exactly. It was really cool. I actually just searched for like hashtag like heart transplant, which is like a total millennial thing to do. Cause I was like, of course I'm gonna look on Instagram. And I met the people who I'm still friends with till this day, there's quite a few of us younger women who had just been through transplant within the last like three to four years. And we started the support group and it was like, we're all around the world. So it's just like an online support group, but it's just as good. And it was just nice to be able to talk like, when are you going to go back to work? Do you plan on working? Like, how do you date? Do you tell the person that you're dating, that you have a transplant on your first date? Like, you know, so like questions that like, I can't talk to uh, like with an 80 year old man, right? Like. <laughs> So that's a big part of what I've changed. So we're on the precipice with the story because where we left the audience off, you were going under anesthesia. Right. right. We left off. So, yeah. I mean, clearly everything has turned out well because here you are. And that was, you know, and you've since done your fellowship post-transplant. So this was a couple of years ago now, but let's just finish this story. I was still intubated for the day after because you don't just immediately extubate a heart transplant patient. I don't know if you've ever been intubated. It is the worst feeling in the world, like awake and intubated, the worst feeling in the world. You feel like you're gagging. I mean, you are gagging, but you feel like you're not breathing, but you are. And I thought he was a kid. I thought it was like a 20-year-old volunteer at the hospital. And he kept coming into the room. And I was like trying to write down like, increase fentanyl, like, please. Like, this is so And he was like, okay, well, like, we'll be right back and we'll try to extubate you. And I was like, who is this kid? You know, I think he ended up getting us blankets. You're going to love this story. So my boyfriend at the time, like, had asked him for blankets, and he came back with blankets, which was very nice of him. You know, eventually I got extubated, and then he comes back. He's like, hey, so nice. He was like, it's an honor to take care of you. Like, I heard that you're an ER doctor, and you want to go into critical care. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, and I thought, I was like, oh, maybe it's like a pre-med kid who wants to, like, talk to me. And it turns out it's John Greenwood, who is, like, a very famous ER critical care doctor whose book I've actually read. Like he is one of <laughs> like, I always thought John Green was like this older person who with the book and like, you know, very well known in our little community in MedEd. But no, he's like, you know, he's like this 40 year old who looks like he's 20 with like dimples. I had like drool. Coming. I was like, oh, <laughs> you meet your you meet your hero with drool coming. Out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, Dr. Greenwood. And he's like, yeah, just call me John. And like, I didn't realize he was the CT ICU attending that day. And actually, we became friends. And what's even funnier is I did some research for him. So we actually like networked through that. And like, he's a great, he's a great friend and mentor now. So hey, John, if you're listening to this. <laughs> but yeah, so I, that was my extubation experience. And then right afterwards, because you know, they put me on high flow, and they were like, you can't eat for the next few hours. And I was like, fuck that, I'm gonna eat. So I had my boyfriend get me I was really craving ginger ale. And so the first thing I did after like a 12 hour surgery, after being intubated, I just like chugged a bunch. Something with bubbles. <laughs> I mean, and I was like, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? Looking back, like I could have aspirated and died, but that's besides the point. And I just chugged maybe like four of them at once. Was it good ginger ale oh, or was it the so hospital good. Shasta? Was it the, sh you know, the little mini ones that everybody... It was the hospital Shasta, but it was just <laughs> what was I needed. <laughs> yeah, it was divine. Yeah. Yeah. The best part is like right after I chug it all, I'm like, Matt, 
I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I have like a brand new sternotomy and I just threw it up everywhere. And then the nurse, like, everybody runs in and they were like, what is this? Like, and I was like, oh, I probably drank it before the surgery. <laughs> Hide the cans. We're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Definitely do not recommend anybody ever like chugging ginger ale right after they get extubated. Now I totally know why, you know, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And I remember the nurse was like, this looks like it's new. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this does not look like digested ginger. Really? What are you looking with a microscope? You're trying to rat me out. So that was my extubation story. You know, within a day I got out of the ICU. So when you're on immunosuppression, they are really difficult medications. Like your first year, even now, I still have some issues with it, but a lot of stomach issues with immunosuppression. And these are like high-dose steroids, high-dose immunosuppression. So, you know, a few things here and there, like I was having like GI issues, but overall, they were just waiting a few days for me to like be able to get more conditioned and get out of the hospital. And so I got discharged just nine days after my heart transplant, which is amazing. And then I went home. And the first day I was like, all right, when can I go back to work? And they were like, oh, well. <laughs> you gave your spot to someone else. <laughs> I think they asked me to wait at least a year. But what I decided was, you know, within five to six months, I went back, but I didn't see patients. I did like admin blocks because I was mostly okay. Like, again, I had to be careful because of the immunosuppression as far as getting like sick. But overall, like, I wore a mask. So this was this was right before COVID. I was always wearing an N95 at the hospital anyway. And yeah, so that was it. And then, you know, in the meantime, while I was recovering, I started a blog called A Change of Heart. And that's when I did fundraisers for Donate Life America. I tried to like, you know, do some education, put resources there. And it was just like an interesting few months where I started to do some advocacy work. And then now I still do it. So that was kind of my recovery. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So where can people find the blog? Where can people find the podcast? Let's talk about your online footprint, which is, you know, how I found you and it's pretty large and impressive. Yeah. The blog is called A Change of Heart. You can just put in a change of H-E.A-R-T and that's the website. I also have A Change of Heart blog, Instagram, and that's the handle itself. And then, you know, I'm on Twitter, A-G underscore E-M three three. I'll send you all of the, the links. But basically, if you put in my name into Google, these three things will pop up. Speaking of Twitter, one of the coolest Twitter interactions that I've seen was you towards the beginning of COVID. I don't know whether it was about the vaccine or it was you interacting with a transplant surgeon about either antibodies or vaccines yeah. or something like that. And I was like, that is so cool. This is, you know, like a physician with a transplant interacting with like a transplant surgeon and getting like real time information, you know, medical advice, but real time, like in a very unsure world with like very little information from like a fantastic research, like the best yeah. information you could possibly get. And I just thought that was like the power of social media. Like it's as amazing. Much as it's a dumpster fire. Right. But like there are there are these glimmers of like the world can be a really cool and amazing place. Absolutely. When people t tell me things like social media sucks, I'm so addicted, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it's been my savior. Like, not only have I connected with other transplant patients, that's one, but like through COVID, all of us medical professionals used social media to learn more about what to do. And I've met so many people through it. Like it's Yes, like it sucks sometimes, but overall, it's been way more helpful in my journey than anything. I mean, not even in my health journey, just like in general, as a physician, it's helped me so much. 
I'm very excited about it. And that's how I met Kobe Salerno, who is the guy that I do the podcast with. So we have a podcast called Both Sides of the Stethoscope. And what happened was when I first got my transplant, you know, I was all open about it on Twitter, which by the way, like people are like, why were you so open about it? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm such a like social media person that I just like post everything all the time. And and then I was like, I don't know. Like I, I thought people would want to know. They're like, oh, that's so brave of you. I was like, brave? Like I just, I was just being me. Like I didn't realize it was this, you know, brave thing that I was doing. But because of that, Kobe had reached out to me and he had at that time happened to be internal medicine resident. And he had a different story than me, but very similar in that he had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I had dilated. I had familial dilated cardiomyopathy and he had a genetic condition that caused hokum. And so he reached out to me and said that he had gotten a transplant before med school. He had been sick more his whole life, more or less his whole life. And so we got together and he became like the person that I'd be like, so do you wear an N95 with like this kind of patient? Like, do you take time off if you have a cath? Like, so he helped me figure out and how to navigate my life post-transplant patient as a resident. And then because of that, we eventually started this podcast. You know, it's been it's been a crazy journey since then. Amazing. Well, you know, you are an inspiration and we've really learned a ton. I've learned a ton. You know, there's a lot to, and it was a really entertaining story. Like the way that you tell it really, I think, I think, you know, sometimes we have some attrition on the podcast. People don't listen to the whole episode, but I'm sure they're going to listen to this whole one because this is really, really compelling, interesting. You get a lot of great tips for how we can do better for our patients as physicians. So thank you for your time and thank you for all that you're giving back. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking if you're interested, or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers.